Well, good morning. Uh, I have to say it feels a little unfair to have uh, Michael Edwards do a prayer and Joshua Faulkner do a reading. I sound like a 14-year-old with a sinus infection. So, uh, happy Mother's Day, all you mothers out there. Actually, when I was 14, I was still being confused for my mom on the phone, so... Happy Mother's Day, Mom. Uh, Well, I'm glad that you're here with us. Uh, My name is Steve. I'm the assistant pastor here. If I haven't met you, I'd love to do so after the service. Uh, This morning, we're picking up right where we left off last week. Uh, We're in the middle of a a series on the book of Acts, and we left off last week right in the middle of a speech. And if you were with us then, then you'll remember that the setting for this speech is the Feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem. And the people of the city have just witnessed this strange outpouring of God's Spirit upon the disciples of Jesus, and they mistook it for drunkenness. And so Peter stood up and began to address the crowd to explain to them what was really going on and how this was something that was prophesied about long ago. That's where we're picking up again this morning. Let me read our passage and pray for us, and we'll get started. This is the New Testament reading from Acts chapter 2. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you did not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence." Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we celebrate this morning a continuation of the Easter season, remembering 
when Jesus ascended in glory back to the right hand of the Father, we ask that the reality of that would be made evident in our lives and that as he ascended, he also gave the gift of his spirit to his church. A gift that allows us to have illumination of your word. A gift that gives us life. That raises our hearts from the deadness of sin just as it raised Jesus from the tomb. I ask this morning that the spirit, that same spirit, would be in this place in power. They would give life to our hearts. They would shine a light on our minds that the word of God would be made real and alive to us. That as a result, we would have a deeper trust in the love of Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. This morning, we're going to look at the rest of Peter's sermon in three parts. The body of proof, show me the meaning, and what do you want me to do about it? Let's begin with body of proof. Do you remember way, way back, almost a millennia ago, in the 2000 election, the presidential election? That was the moment that, for those of you that didn't pay attention in history or civics class, you began to realize that the election process is a little bit murkier than you might have anticipated, that, that does your vote really count, or how does this whole electoral college thing happen? And uh, when, when Bush versus Gore went before the Supreme Court, there were all these recounts being called, and finally, it seemed like after an eternity, we had a, a president. Bush was named the victor. But even after the dust settled on that particular uh, problem, do you guys remember the Not My President bumper stickers? They were probably cropping up all over Portland at the time. And now, over a decade later, Sandra Day O'Connor has said that she's not really sure if the Supreme Court should have ever even taken that case. And so once again, all of the pundits and talking heads are kind of dredging up all of these things. Like, who really should have won? Who really should have been vindicated? And all of which is to say, being proven right isn't always that easy. It's not always clear in our world who is vindicated and who is locked out as a loser. Jesus of Nazareth wasn't the first guy to come along claiming to be the Messiah. And he wasn't the first to get killed as a result either. And in all the other cases, the religious establishment, the, the, the temple leaders of Israel were proven right. They were vindicated in their own eyes that these other radicals were not sent from God, they were not prophets of God, and that they, the established religious leaders, held true religion, that they were the keepers of the true worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And likewise with the political power of Rome, they were proven right. Every single time one of these would-be messiahs would, would try to start an insurrection, Rome was proven right. They were vindicated that their conception of justice that their way of enforcing the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, by the only real threat that the state can make, by, by execution, was the right way to go. That it's the true way to live. It's the true way for the state to deal with insurrection. In the case of Jesus, the religious leaders thought that they were getting rid of a troublemaking rabbi. They called him a blasphemer, and it was convenient that he did actually claim to be God, but the true sin that he committed in their eyes was that he actually uncovered their own hearts. He uncovered the dead sin that was residing within them, and he referred to them as whitewashed tombs. And so these offended religious leaders convinced the political leaders around them to rig a trial, and they pushed for a conviction based on false testimony, and he went down so easily the whole thing was bought and paid for and swept away quietly. It was just one more forgotten loser who messed with the wrong powerful people because after all, 
Dead men don't tell tales. They did, however, fail to consider one option, and that's the option that he was right, that what he claimed to be was actually what he was. They failed to consider that Jesus might not just be innocent of blasphemy, that he might actually be God himself, in which case execution probably isn't going to work out, which is exactly what Peter stands up to tell the crowd. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, he was accredited by God to you. He did acts of power, wonders, and signs. Three different words that are kind of summing up for Peter, the, the, the powerful, miraculous ministry of Jesus, things that should have made the crowd sit back and wonder and consider, what could it mean? What could it mean that the blind are being given their sight, that the deaf are able to hear, that the dead are raised and that the poor have the good news preached to them? But rather than actually consider what these wonders were signs of, they instead killed him with the help of what the NIV refers to as wicked men, but really what it says is men outside the law. Peter's referring to people that were not part of the Jewish law. He's referring to the Romans. He says that you, you colluded with our enemies to kill God's Messiah. We're going to come back to look uh, in more detail at verse 23 in a moment, but Peter continues to tell the people, and what he's basically telling them is, we have a body of proof that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And that body of proof is twofold. One, it's an actual resurrected physical body, the body of Jesus. And two, it's the corpus of the Hebrew scriptures. The tomb is empty. There is a historical fact that was unavoidable. Sure, the Romans and the Jewish leaders tried to come up with a plausible story about what could have happened. But the reality was that the tomb was empty, very much unlike David, unlike the other heroes of the Jewish faith. And this is exactly what David prophesied would happen. It's not just that it happened historically, it's that it was talked about for centuries before throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. And in this very first recorded sermon of the church, Peter begins to tie Jesus back to all manner of Scriptures, and not least here, to the prophecies of the King David. What Peter, in effect, tells the crowd is, you were wrong. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, and you said no, and you had him killed. But God said yes and raised him from the dead and now he has ascended to the right hand of God and been given glory. And if you had actually understood the prophecies in your own scripture, you might have seen this coming. As if it weren't enough that this happened, that there is a historical event that Peter's referring to, that there is also this body of proof throughout Israel's own scriptures. Peter goes on to show us the meaning of all of these strange things. And it's, it's going to be difficult. We're going to have to go pretty quick because this is, we're basically looking at Jesus as a rushing river. And we're going to try to backtrack about 12 different tributaries to try to figure out all the layers of meaning that Peter and Luke are laying out for us. So here we go. First off, in verse 23, Peter tells the crowd that Jesus was handed over to them by the deliberate plan and foreknowledge of God. And so already we're going to be tempted to head down a rabbit trail to, to try to discuss what is the nature of human agency. In other words, what does it mean to say that we are free and responsible? Do we actually make our own decisions or is there some sort of divine determinism in play here? How does human freedom intersect with divine sovereignty? Which is to say, in terms of what Luke and Peter are talking about, who killed Jesus? Well, according to Luke and according to Peter, God, the religious leaders of Israel, the complicit crowds, 
the Roman executioners. We obviously don't have time to build a philosophical model of human freedom and responsibility that, that collides with a world that is contained inside of divine sovereignty. That's, that's incredibly important. It's helpful in a lot of ways, and we could, we could talk about it for probably years, uh, but we don't have time to do that this morning. So what I can say is that Luke is not attempting to build a model for us, for us to see how does it work that we're responsible for our own choices if God is getting exactly what he wants. But what he is clear is on, on is this. We are held responsible for our actions. The people of Jerusalem, the religious leaders at the time, and the Roman executioners were held responsible for the execution of Jesus. And yet it was done exactly according to God's plan. And it's this divine plan that has tributaries running throughout Scripture. And it begins at the very beginning, when God creates the entire universe and places his image upon humanity, and he prepares a place in which he will dwell with them. He makes for them a garden. But we all know that humanity was tempted by a serpent. It's a strange old tale that sounds very much like fancy, and yet it's one of those stories that is so much more true for having sounded fanciful. You know those kinds of stories? The kind with a talking snake? Here this serpent, the embodiment of evil, comes, and at his suggestion, we throw off God's rule and attempt to run our own lives. And as a result of this rebellion, the entire world is plunged into disarray, and a curse comes upon all things. It comes upon the man, it comes upon the woman, and it comes upon the earth and all of her creatures, and death enters into the world. At first, it's, it's imperceptible. It's a spiritual death. It's a separation between God and his world, but eventually it reveals itself in the decay of the living. As people get older and their bodies start to break down and they die, they go from dust to dust. But God tells his creatures right in that very moment, as he is explaining to them the curse that they have brought upon their own heads, he says that through the offspring of the woman, one day salvation will come, that one day a man born of woman will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will strike his heel. It's rather fitting on Mother's Day that we're going to be talking about offspring, which is a huge uh, theme throughout Scripture. And it's, it's, if you'll allow me a little bit of linguistic nerdery, it's very fascinating to me that, that Luke is, is tying Jesus into this story of way back when, when God curses humanity and tells women, you're going to have a lot of pain in childbirth. And the exact phrase that Luke uses when he says that Jesus um, was brought out of the agony of death is that he was brought out of the pain of childbirth. And just as a pregnant woman cannot contain the child within her, she has to go through the pain to get it out, and it's inevitable. So it was inevitable that death could not hold Jesus. And we see that thousands of years before it was prophesied that there would be this offspring of the woman who would, who would trample on the head of the serpent and the serpent would strike his heel. So Adam and Eve have a child. And Eve assumes this is, this is the one, this is the man who will come and save us. And yet it's not him. And with every passing generation, the promise gets buried deeper and deeper in disenchantment and the world remains darkened. But eventually, God calls a man out from among his people. And he tells him that he will make him a great nation and that through his offspring, God will bless the entire world. He will bless all nations on earth. And Abraham believes God and it's credited to him as righteousness. And then over the centuries, 
Abraham's children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, and on down the line all have prophecies made over them. They're spoken. And the descendant of Abraham is told that his house will be a royal house, that Judah will be known as the lion among his brothers. And then Judah's descendant, David, the man chosen by God to be the king over his people, David, the one whom God made a covenant with that we heard read earlier this morning, that one day David's offspring would sit on the throne for all time. As Israel, through her own actions, through her own rebellion, gets tossed around by violent nations, the the one hope that she clung to, the, the, the tiny little burning flicker of a candle that all of the prophets were tying back into was always this Davidic heir, this son of David. They referred to it as the stump of Jesse. It was like one little shoot barely coming out of what seemed to be a dead monarchy. But they were hoping that one day this Davidic heir would come and rescue them. That this royal prophet who wears the robes of a priest would come among his people. And in the last days, in the great and terrible day of the Lord, it would finally happen. God would finally visit his people. That his spirit would come come in power upon the son of David and be poured out upon all the people. The spirit would reside with them. It would write the law in their hearts. It would bring life to dry bones. It would bring resurrection, vindication. And what Peter is saying is that these are those last days. It's different than what was expected. But Jesus is that son of David. And that God had planned for the serpent to do what the serpent does best, to strike the heel in hate and murderous rage. Satan tries his best to conquer God's Messiah once and for all. And it's in that moment of his apparent victory over Jesus. It is in that moment where God seems at his weakest as he gasps out dying, that God is actually victorious and his plan for all of time is enacted. And Peter says that what the people are seeing that seems to them like drunkenness is really that promised spirit being poured out and that the spirit is being poured out because Jesus really was the Messiah. He was the embodiment of all that was prophesied and he really did raise from the dead and he really did ascend into heaven to the right hand of God. And it's not just that Jesus is Messiah. It's not just that he's the promised son of David. It's not just that he's the offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, the offspring of Abraham in whom all nations would be blessed. Jesus isn't just the Holy One that David prophesied would be shown the paths of life and would not see the decay that comes with death. He's not just the resurrected one. He is Yahweh. That's what Peter is saying. Peter has been quoting and alluding to Joel 2 throughout this speech. And so when he tells the people that Jesus is Kyrios, Jesus is Lord, the Lord upon whom they should call for salvation, when he says that Jesus is the Lord who calls those who are near and who are far to come to him for salvation, he doesn't just mean Lord as in sovereign. He means Lord as in Yahweh, the very name of God the personal God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who created all things, the God who led his people out of slavery, the God who brings life and refreshing to his people. Be assured, Peter tells the crowd, in raising Jesus from the dead and the ascension of Jesus to the heavenly realm, he is being revealed to us as Messiah and Yahweh. It's not that God turned him into those things at that time. It's that in raising him from the dead and allowing him for his glory to be revealed to all of the earth, that he is finally showing who he truly was 
all along. So what does it mean? Well, our confession of sin this morning actually speaks quite a bit to it. As Brian said earlier, this is a very dense confession theologically. But what it means that Jesus died and rose and ascended is basically what the rest of the entire New Testament is about. It talks about what it means for his church. And one of the things at the very end of our confession of sin that we, that we said this morning is that our inheritance is in your ascension. And so here on Ascension Sunday, we celebrate the fact that, yes, the Messiah did ascend back. He is no longer present with us in the same way that he was when he was on earth. And yet he does so so that his Holy Spirit can come down and be on the church universal. What Peter tells the people is that this means that Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified, risen, ascended one, is the one who was promised in the age of fulfillment, and he is God himself. So what are we to do about that? Well, in our story here, the people are cut to the heart, and they cry out, what should we do? And this is the beauty of the gospel. It's the very heart of the message because the exact same people who cried out crucify, the people who said, let his blood be upon our heads, let us be held responsible, when they realize what they've done, when they see Jesus for who he is, when they see Jesus as the revealed God, the miracle is they're not simply annihilated. And rather than just being done away with, they are enjoined to repent. They are pleaded with to change their assessment of Jesus and to be baptized in his name and be forgiven and receive the Holy Spirit. This is staggering. What kind of God has this sort of plan? What kind of God plans on taking upon himself the suffering and death of his creation and then forgiving his own murderers and bestowing life upon them? But Peter says that this promise, the promise that God will forgive the people of his own murder is for them, it's for their children, and it's for all those who are far off, which is us. Which means, don't you realize it means there is nothing you could do against this God that would disqualify you from turning around and being embraced by him. He calls his own murderers to come and find peace and reconciliation. So what should we do? Well, there are several things here, many of which we won't tie up this morning, but instead I hope that that we will continue to follow these strands in our life together, discussing them at our dinner tables and in our community groups. But first I would say this, if you have found yourself unable to believe that God could receive someone like you, if you've been unable to trust that he is indeed good and full of love, if you think the things you've done are just too bad, I invite you to reconsider. Look at the way Jesus treats his own murderers. Perhaps, though, you don't necessarily think that you've been too bad, but you might find the Christian message a bit too narrow, and so you prefer sort of a generic spiritual path where you can just kind of affirm all people of faith and and all paths to God, and, and the Christian faith is just too limited and too severe, and I would implore you of the very same thing. 
Look again at Jesus. Find any severity. Find narrowness in a God who will actually forgive his own murderers. Reconsider how you feel about him. Change your mind about him and look at the way he treats even his worst enemies with grace, with patience, and with love. He invites them as he invites you to find peace and forgiveness and life. So change your mind about him. Ask him to change your mind for you and then come and be baptized in his name and allow him to cover you in his mercy. For those of you that have turned to Jesus and and have been baptized into his church, there are a few things that we need to enter into together as the people of Jesus. And the first is that this message of the crucified and arisen Jesus who forgives his murderers has got to be the center of our message and life together. It has got to be our identity, the primary thing that we are known for. If you know anyone who has survived cancer, you know that they don't consider themselves a healthy person. They consider themselves a cancer survivor. Their their identity has been changed by what they have gone through in going from death to life. And that is the same thing that has happened with the people of the church. The New Testament talks about us in two very different terms— We're both horrible sinners and sanctified holy saints. How is that possible? Well, we're not just one or the other. We're both. We are are people who have been forgiven of the absolute worst things, things that we can't even own up to in our own hearts. And God is sanctifying us despite our own sin. And this means that we can't base our identity on anything else. Anything else, this has got to be the absolute core of how we think of ourselves as forgiven sinners. We can't primarily be the church that really gets beauty. So we meet in the old church. I love telling people I meet in Portland that we meet in the old church. I love that we get what it means to have a beautiful space, a space designed for worship, a space designed to gear our minds to thinking about the glory of God. Does meeting in in a space designed for worship matter? Absolutely. But that cannot be the center of who we are. Likewise, we can't primarily be the church that is really savvy politically. First of all, because we can't agree on what that means. Does that mean being conservative or does it mean being progressive? Whatever it means, that can't be the core of who we are. Do we have something to say to the public sphere? Yes. Is it important to think about the pathways that our culture is walking and and assess the truth and goodness of those pathways? Absolutely it is. But that cannot be the core of our identity. Friends, we can't be primarily the church that really gets theology and so we use big words and we look down our nose at other church traditions. And by the way, do you get the irony in this new gospel-centered movement? How easy it is to start saying, well, but we really get the gospel. You know, and those other guys, they just really don't get it. Is it important to have a robust theology? Yes, it is absolutely important. Is it important to understand the gospel and the message of grace? Yes, absolutely, and yet it is more important to be held by it. So when we start congratulating ourselves on being brighter than everyone else, when we get frustrated with all those other idiot Christians who just don't get it. Have we really understood the gospel? What are you known for at work, primarily? 
And believe me, I don't want you to ask my coworkers any more than you want me to ask yours. What does your carefully curated social media profile say about your primary identity? How do you treat people who think differently than you? How do you treat people that, that you think are weird or scary or that you don't understand? When we realize that our life has been saved by the very person we fought against, how can we have our own enemies anymore? We have got to understand as a church that God's forgiveness is for us and it's for the people that we perceive as our enemies. And secondly, as a, as a church, we are now the community of the Spirit. Luke tells us that as Peter ended this sermon, 3,000 were added to their numbers that day. And in, in the coming weeks, we're going to see a little bit more about what this community looks like. But, but Luke is very intentional about the fact that you don't just get saved into a vacuum. You get saved into the church, into the community. And though Luke doesn't really drill down a whole lot on what that means, St. Paul picks it up directly in almost all of his letters, what it means to be a community empowered, enlivened, and united by the Spirit. Paul tells us in one of his letters that we have each been given a specific role to play and the goal of our life in the church is to build one another up into Christ. Just as these first converts were cut to the heart, just as they repented and were baptized and were added to the community, so we have been born into a new community, a new kingdom, a place in which we have a role to play. Which is another way of saying that each of you have been given specific gifts. And this church needs you to use those gifts. And I can't describe for you specifically what your gift is, but I can tell you it will look a lot like service. And it will involve giving up your rights. It will involve considering others more than yourself. It will involve building up others more than yourself. Because if the centerpiece of the greatest rescue mission in history is the service suffering, and death of the king, what else could it look like to work in his kingdom? Let's pray together. Jesus, as we come to your table in a moment, we are asking that what was poured out in these first days of the early church would continue to be poured out on us that the gift of the Holy Spirit would be given to us, that we would leave this place united, enlivened, leave this place reminded that our identity is forgiven sinners, that we would go out and love and forgive the people that have sinned against us just as you have loved us. I ask that this truth would be driven deep within our hearts as we come to your table and as we uh, gather throughout our homes this week. We ask it in your name. Amen.